Okay, hello, and welcome to the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I am, once again, at an Nexus Summit, and I'm interviewing my good friend, Alex Amoyel. Did I pronounce that right? Amoyel. Amoyel? Yeah. My mother is a French professor, and she'll be the first person to tell you that I'm not qualified to pronounce anything in French. Particularly, I grew up learning mostly uh, Quebecois French. You are from Paris? I'm from Paris. Hello, everyone. I've been everyone. there. <laughs> uh, well, did you, so you grew up in Paris? Yeah, I grew up in Paris until 17. So uh, what was that like? Um, I was just talking about that, actually, because my brother just got married on Saturday oh, in Paris. Oh, mazel tov. So thank you, thank you. And so there was some reminiscing about, like, you know, our, our childhood and various things like that. And I just remember lots of games playing cartoon characters, French cartoon characters. Um, Asterix and Obelix? Well, and also Marsupilami. I don't know that you've right, heard of that. But it's like, it's like a yellow, like, it's a yellow... Sort of animal which isn't quite uh which jumps everywhere it's complicated what is his name Pilami, and he lives in the amazonian forest and i also remember uh, babar forest. yeah did you elephant. have babar yeah but we didn't want to play being babar we didn't want to be an elephant we wanted to be marsupilamis wow. and then i don't know lots of playing and now everybody has video games and and stuff like that but i remember spending a lot of time playing in in parks on slides and various things like that uh, amazing. What did, when you were uh, a little girl growing up in Paris, what did you imagine that you would grow up to be? Uh, I had a pretty defined idea from very young, but it didn't turn out at all how I imagined. Rarely. So, yeah. So my earliest memory of wanting to do something was that I wanted to be a prosecutor to put bad people in prison. Nowadays, having learned about it, I would probably still be a prosecutor, but sort of work on restorative justice and changing the criminal justice mm. system. So quite different. And then, and then afterwards, maybe 13, 14, I decided that I wanted to be a research scientist to rid the world of cancer. And I actually pursued then a degree in biochemistry and like even started a PhD that I quit after three months. Hmm. Um, with the idea of doing that, but then three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was the, one of the mistakes of my. Why did you? What was the? <laughs> is there a particular reason why you quit? Um, because I, in fact, being a the day to day of being a scientific researcher in terms of attention to detail and obviously hmm. sort of being obsessed um, very heavily for with a problem for like ten or twenty years um, was probably not. You know, it was. The issue area was something I was passionate about, but the day-to-day -day of scientific research wasn't, and probably wasn't adapted to my skill set either. Um, but there was a when I was young, I guess there was a lot of um, outside pressure. Um, that, you know, I was good at this, and therefore I should. And I got a big scholarship, and therefore I yes, this do was it. my my next question for you. So your two the two main things from when you were, you wanted to put bad people away, uh, which uh, Certainly, there are bad people who should be put away, uh, but and also to to rid the world of cancer. And those seem to, those are those indicate to me very strong values. Uh, who who and you talk about some sort of outside forces and pressure, uh, but certainly someone taught you to be the sort of person that wants to make the world a better place. Yes, uh, I definitely think. Obviously, my my parents and my grandmother had a huge influence on on my life on. On instilling those values um, but I yeah so from a very young age I think I did want to make the world a better place 
Um, I also think, I don't know, the prosecutor idea probably comes from watching so too television. much TV series on the Order the and, on and all of that. Um, but then I, I also think that there's, you know, there's an element of, I grew up in a, in a, in a sort of middle class family in a country which has good, you know, free education and good sort of, um, social safety nets and blah, blah, blah. And so I think that I could, you know, I had the luxury of, of, you know, not having to worry about money too much and things like that. And so that I think is also something which allows you to develop the, the, the values of wanting to give back and save and the world. And, and certainly it makes there. things like becoming a prosecutor or a researcher seem more realistic. Yeah. Uh, my own parents were half PhDs. Uh, and I actually remember once, uh, I never tried to get one, but I, I considered it. And I, the, one of the benefits of having parents who have PhDs mm. is you can ask them. Uh, and my dad said, he, I remember he drew a circle and he said, this circle is everything all the people in the world know, right? And when you're born, you're just a little dot in the middle, you know nothing, right? Oh. You slowly, the circle becomes a little bit bigger, right? What people who get PhDs do is they make a straight line <laughs> to the edge of the circle. And then they make, they push the circle out a little bit and mm. the circle becomes just a little tiny bit bigger, right? But the majority of the circle, it, they never get to see it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he explained that to me, and I said, "Well, I that's uh, congratulations to both of you on your PhDs." <laughs> but I would rather there's a lot of there's a lot of other interesting stuff in here uh, that I can imagine myself doing. I think probably um, similar to you. So after you uh, you gave up, yes, uh, you quit yes. on becoming a uh, researcher. Um, what, what, uh, what did you do next? So yeah, I quit the day I turned 21. So that was also significant in a sense. Is uh, the, was this in France? No, in the UK. In the UK. The, but the, so in America, the drinking age is 21. So no, that's yeah, a well, fairly I, important birthday. In the UK, it's not that meaningful in terms like of you legality. You definitely are drinking before but, that. Yes. Yeah, you can both drink before that. You can vote before that. You can drive before that, and lots of things. We we can as well. Let's well. just drink. <laughs> um, but anyway, but the yeah, so that was significant in 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 some ways, and um, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to Still do. Still pretty young, twenty one. Yeah, um, but I went to I went for a few months to teach English in China, and then I applied for master's program programs and uh, went to do a master's in international affairs and notably conflict and security. Um, but sort of, I partly chose my master's because it was as broad as possible. <laughs> and yes. so I could sort of study again. International affairs. <laughs> yeah, that, that literally covers Anything. everything. Exactly. So that was good. <laughs> it was the opposite of my undergrad. I did it in the opposite end. My undergraduate was fairly specific and there I was fairly broad, but yeah, but then sort of started opening up a lot more doors. <laughs> and so after you, uh, well, I think every day is a school day, right? We all continue to learn, right? But you're, you have finished your formal education. Yes, for now. And who knows, So once you had, once you had the master's degree, what did you go and did you get, get a job or something? What did you do? Yeah, and nobody would pay me to do anything interesting in human rights. You know, I would jerry into working at Human Rights Watch and those types of places. Nobody would pay me to do anything interesting in that. So I joined a management consulting firm in London because they would pay me. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounded vaguely interesting, and it was. Um, and then one of the projects I did with them was working for Save the Children on a pro bono project. Mm -hmm. um, which um, was one of my dream sort of institutions. And so then we I... We gave them feedback once. Ah, That's good. That's twice. 
Super. And so then the I, Australian office sends us proposals. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we ended up uh, working. Um, that went well. And so I ended up sort of in the end taking a full-time job at Save the Children hmm. um, and transferring sort of out in that sense from the management consulting firm. And, and I did that for a while. And then I came to New York and worked for the Clinton Foundation. And now I'm here at MIT Solve. Um, terrific. I have a, a couple questions about the, the things that happened in there. <laughs> uh, so uh, Save the Children is uh, one of the world's largest nonprofits, right? Mm -hmm. uh, talk to me a little bit about, the, have you, uh, I think you also have, at least uh, uh, through your social network, uh, some experience with small uh, nonprofits that I would call the unfunded, right? Yeah. Um, I, so we, we're happy to give feedback to Save the Children, and their Australian program is not as well-funded as some of the other entities. Um, uh, but they're very, they're not a typical, uh, <laughs> can you talk to me a little bit? I've never, I worked, the largest nonprofit I ever worked at was Conservation International, yeah. which does, which is large. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, in many ways I, uh, I did like it because there's a lot of comfort that comes from a thing like that. You only have to do your job, right? At, at, at the unfunded or everyone has like got three jobs, right? I literally, yeah. in fact, once I tried to do more, they were like, stay in your lane. <laughs> right it was like so and for some people really like that comfort and security and the, and uh, that you know that conservation international is going to exist next year uh <laughs> and, and and those sorts of things but right it for me it was also i want to like i going back to my talking about my dad drawing the straight line right. to the circle i wanted to dance around in the entire circle there was stuff happening on the other in the other divisions at conservation international that i found fascinating and i wasn't allowed to go to those meetings and like i don't know um, and, and for the, the I, I learned a lot and it was very interesting. I did like somewhat enjoy my work there, but eventually I realized I had to leave and that was sort of when I realized I wanted to be at smaller, more upstarty type places. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, what you see as the difference yeah, in, yeah. between and I, huge and tiny. Yeah. And I've worked at different places, which were different sizes, um, throughout. And I think what's interesting, um, so say the children is I think the largest independent children's organization in the world, so it's huge. Uh, I think it has now over $2 billion of funding every year and like- Well, I assume there's probably tens like, of thousands five, like probably at least 50 different entities, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, So, the, and, but that's sort of what country I was by country. doing. So that that's indeed a lot of the work that I was doing. And I think that, so first of all, in general, I think Save the Children's wonderful and people sort of berate often things that are too big and overhead percentages and, and a number of things, but there's reasons for which scale and reach yes. are really important. Save the Children works in a number of countries um, that nobody else is present in mm -hmm. because they they have the capabilities and the um, and the reach, and that also means that when you know, for years it was one of the only um, organizations that worked in Myanmar, and so when there was mm -hmm. a big cyclone and people were donating lots of money to a number of the was, NGOs. Fact, the proposal in, we read is for is in Myanmar. Oh, great, great. Is it still called Myanmar? Well, it's originally, I mean, the, I am, could, my geography in that part of the world is, is very rusty. Well, Burma is the colonial name that the British gave it. And then the military junta, which ultimately took over, decided to rename it Myanmar. But both terms are in a sense problematic because Burma is the colonial name and Myanmar is the junta name. So. So go ahead. I mean, the original <laughs> name is Myanmar, so you know you could say they were not wrong. But anyway, and there certainly is a, a lot of um, issues. 
Yes, indeed, in indeed. Um, but so they, um, but that was the point. It was so the children, when the cyclone hit and people were donating money to all these organizations, they legally couldn't work in that country. And, and in fact, Save the Children was the only one that could legally, one of the only ones who could legally work because they had been there for 30 years and they'd established sort of, mm-hmm. um, sort of a presence and good relationships. And so I think that that makes, and you know, although sometimes overhead and processes and division of labor, makes it um, feel a bit more inefficient than it could be. It also means that, you know, they have proper child safety procedures and they have proper, you know, they ensure that the money is going to the right places and isn't being used in a corrupt way and that the people that they hire are, you know, going to use, you know, are going to be uh, good stewards of, of donor money. So I think that there's a lot to, to say also about big organizations and scale and they can do things that, ultimately smaller organizations mm-hmm. they might be more innovative and they might and you know and you need that balance but um there's a lot of things that um scale brings you and my role at save the children was specifically to uh, make it more efficient and to look across all these different entities um the australians the british the americans uh, which were the sort of fundraising um parts of, of save the children and sort of make it more efficient for them to work with their um, different country offices and various things. So it was also about driving. I think my role um, there was very. It was a small team, and my role there was specifically to look about, you know, going around the, having a bird's eye view and going around the world and like helping figure out the sort of big questions that Save the Children was asking. So that was very exciting. Very interesting. Uh, one of our one of the aims of the podcast is why we we do like to educate people about the philanthropy sector. And one of the things, the knowledge gaps I've noticed, right, is I think a lot of people don't understand uh, the difference between the large nonprofits, the difference in size yeah. between the large nonprofits and like what, what most people think of as nonprofits. Right? That I think most people assume that they don't have any money, <laughs> right? But some of them, in fact, have. Where you, where you meant two billion? Yeah. To, I think probably two billions, probably right. Maybe even yeah, a little well, more. that there was are, a couple of years ago. There are several much, international yeah. nonprofits with billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar budgets every year, and yeah. there are people making right, making money, and they're doing real work, and they can pay for work and stuff. And then there are unfunded. There are unfunded. There are people who are right. The, the it is kept alive right because of the blood, uh, sweat, and tears. Well, the founder <laughs> is, is running on fumes, right? And uh, to the casual observer, right? It's, just, it's website nonprofit, like looks like they're the same thing. Right? They, these are really, really different universes. And I agree with you. Like I, I prefer myself uh, the smaller ones. That's what's more interesting to me. Uh, but I, you're absolutely right. Like for especially in the aftermath of a disaster, you want like organizations that that have been in that country, right, and and know what they're doing there, who can respond to that, right. But sometimes, like let's say a new, a brand, an all new kind of disaster comes along, right, that'll require some new and innovative solutions. Uh, and that's where that's where the unfunded come in. That's very very interesting. The differences between those things. So thank you. Then you went on uh, to work for to for Bubba, the big fella. <laughs> How was that? It's present Clinton. <laughs> uh, it was fantastic. I mean, it was a totally different experience, and that's something that you know I look for in in that sense. Sort of whereas Save the Children was very much working with the different country offices in Pakistan and in North Korea, in Cambodia, in in Lebanon, et cetera, and sort of helping them become more efficient, which was a lot about finance, HR, legal, and sort of the back office of running an NGO. This role at the Clinton Foundation was looking at the program 
of the Clinton Global Initiative, which is the which was the big annual meeting, and sort of what are the themes, who are the speakers. So there, it's a completely different like role because it's it was about um, really setting the agenda for the people setting the agenda and you know heads of state and Bill Gates and mm. President Obama and a whole bunch of people and so, fancy people. Fancy Having people fancy meetings, and, yeah, but it, and big, so big, large checks and stuff. Uh, yeah, and creating multi-million or hundreds of millions and even several billion-dollar cross-sector partnerships, um, and really having uh, an influence, I guess, over the the, Some very large... the state of philanthropy at large. In a sense, compared to what I was doing at Save the Children, was very much like in the weeds on the ground and that type of thing. So it was fantastic to you know, completely change the frame of reference, if you will. That's, I'm interested to hear you say that. So I uh, was invited to some CGI things. I'd never, I've never been, I uh, never was involved in any of this stuff. Uh, but it does seem to, the, the, from my outside perspective, it does seem to me that it, it was, along with some other people, part of the, of starting the a change in how philanthropists talk about how we do philanthropy in this country. Uh, and, um, one of the things that's important to remind everybody is that philanthropy is still quite a new concept for humans. Uh, we've been around for thousands of years. We've only had philanthropy for a couple hundred max. Uh, there were. Um, it depends on how you define that. Yeah, I think that there was always support systems that are foundation-based philanthropy, yes. like we're talking yeah, yeah. about CGI. Did that? that yeah, yeah, that, of that, course. That yeah, yeah. Not a historical thing, right? Um, and uh, the it was done. I think like my grandmother's generation, who ran my foundation before me. Yeah. I don't think she was a very good philanthropist because she wasn't trying to be. She didn't view it as a skill mm. that needed that could be evaluated and improved. And with with CGI, I think we were starting to say like, let's do this and let's be, let's put some, let's, let's start. And a lot, again, he didn't invent this himself, right? yeah. but along with a lot of other people, and that sort of started to change how the conversation in philanthropy from a back padding conversation, right? Aren't we all wonderful? I'll see you at the next gala, right? Which still happens. Yeah. But, but there were, and if, if I remember correctly, I think uh, Clinton was very sort of pioneering with the concept of commitments. Yeah. Can you talk about what the what yeah. commitments were at CGI? Uh, so. Um, I was doing finger quotes. Yeah, yeah. For, the, finger, for those finger listening. Quotes. Uh, so commitment <laughs> to actions, uh, I think there ended up being 3,400 commitments. There are still a number still operational. They sort of survive. Give and me an example continue. of a commitment. Um, so. You could, the initial ones, and it was still the case, is you could, you had, when you came to the meeting as a CGI member, um, you had to commit to do something. And it often, at the beginning, it was very much my organization, I'm a corporation, or I'm a foundation, or a philanthropist, and I commit to doing this. Um, and in this, the first ones were you know, a bit small and, and quite individual, but then very quickly it became about um, partnership and cross-sector partnerships. So most of, I forgot the percentage, but most of the commitments in like the, the later batches were corporations working with foundations and governments or, you know, and nonprofits or combinate, you know, several different mm -hmm. type of combinations and doing, committing to doing things over and above and beyond what they would have done otherwise and really, um, you know, really since um, formalizing, uh, again, something that was developing maybe outside, but I think CGI really sort of helped catalyze, which sort of public-private partnerships and this yes. notions of no no one sector alone is going to 
solve the really tough problems such as climate change or how do we educate you know on the next generations for the 21st century and that type of thing and so there were some which were billions of dollars um the biggest one i think was the afl cio and the aft moving all of their pension fund money towards um renewable energy and creating jobs uh, around that um, and sort of a real I assume shift. that's a big pension fund. Yeah. Uh, well, it's the unions. It's the major yes. American unions. <laughs> I live here so, in D.C. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Familiar with the building. Um, the AFL-CEO has a very fancy building. Yes. Uh, American right Federation of Teachers. And then, um, but then there were some, um, you know, which were multi-stakeholder, um, around women sourcing, you know, a combination of Walmart and uh, yeah, I can't remember all, all the people who were involved, but sort of that they would source forty uh, percent of their products from women-owned businesses and things. Do you like have that. a favorite commitment? All commitments were my favorite children's. All of them? Um, you don't I, work there anymore. You, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I sort of. If you're under an NDA like three, or something. No, no, no. That was <laughs> and that was also one of the things. There, so there all are the commitments. Listed? Yeah, are they're these all listed on the website. You could see. They're all public. I, I like listing philanthropy programs. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, I just, it's also three and a half years ago, so I can't remember all the examples. One of the bigger ones as well was the, the Rockefeller Foundation working with Swiss Re and a number of them on the Resilient Cities project and, mm. and all the C40 mayors and that type of thing and really trying to um, bring chief resilience officers in the different um towns because we know that cities are at the forefront of climate change and mitigation and adaptation and there was not really much um thinking around that so how long were you at the the, the foundation there uh just under four and a half years what did you learn um, in that time I learned a lot of things about the sector and because I I didn't have probably working at Save the Children that bird's eye view of um what uh, both government, corporation, foundations, nonprofits were doing together and what were the gaps um, as well. And so I think that that, um, you know, that was a, a new world that was very exciting. And then I think that I took a lot of this in, in sort of then my new role um, at MIT Solve and, you know, taking still some of that ethos of working across all sectors, but also seeing... I think that what um, CGI was very good at is bringing the big players to the table and committing millions, if not billions of dollars to um, to sort of looking to solve um, different issues. Um, and we invited a number of social entrepreneurs um, as well every year, but uh, but being able to connect the these smaller social entrepreneurs who had promising innovative solutions to then these bigger players was not... Mm. It was a little bit sort of here. Here's a ticket to CGI now. <laughs> figure it out. Um, sure. And there was not a lot of support there. Um, and so I think you know, in starting MIT Solve, uh, a lot of it is more You're very focused. good at protecting, predicting what my next question. Yeah, is. exactly. Um, is is sort of focusing mm -hmm. a lot more on that earlier Can stage innovation. No, I can't. I can't. <laughs> um, is uh, is focusing on that earlier stage of innovation and how technology also plays a role, needs to play a role in in those conversations and infusing that into you know into still working with these bigger players. Yeah, because you've still got you have some bigger. large CGI style partners right, yeah. that are helping out with the um, 
uh, with your solvers. And I've noticed uh, that you do, both when you talk about your program and also in your normal speech, you use the word solve a lot. Yes. Can you tell me what you mean by like solving? So I think that we, um, you know, taking it again a, a step really, really high level, hopefully your audience um, is familiar with the UN Sustainable Development Goals or mm. if they've been paying attention. Um, but the dozens of people <laughs> who listen to my philanthropy podcast are familiar with the Sustainable Development Goals. Excellent, yes. excellent. Um, and they, um, you know, they set a, a benchmark for the world to, to hopefully, you know, really advance uh, the world's progress. Um, and we talk a lot about the $2.5 trillion of funding that is missing annually to, to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, right? Um, and Hold on. $2.5 trillion. Supposedly. So, yeah, I heard someone from the UN say that once. Yeah. And I, I w it was not a question and answer panel. Yeah. So I didn't get asked a question. Uh, can you give me and the audience a little, like, a, what exactly are we talking about? You're so th they're saying we can meet all these goals. Well, we, ju that's we just the... need $2.5 so trillion. Dollars. So that's the problem. Um, they Is... say that's sort of a little but bit. But am I what more or say. less correct? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're correct. They say we're not going to achieve these goals if. Unless, government, unless. unless government, the private sector, philanthropists, etc., pony up a lot more money, i.e., $2.5 trillion per annum, um, to reach it. And obviously, we've already. No other way to do it? Well, this is the problem. Must be $2.5 trillion a year? Well, this is an estimate that. This is just a shocking they, lack of imagination. Yes. But that, and that, well, so that's the point. What they don't talk about is, um, and I'm writing an article on this that I need to actually finish and publish. But is the innovation gap is really do we think that even if we had all this money suddenly available with the solutions that we have today, we would suddenly the iron lung would be perfect. Yeah, and <laughs> and so we still really need innovation um, to reach, and it's not about sort of nuclear fusion and sort of cutting edge technologies, the type of technologies that MIT is developing, um, but when you're talking about lack of energy for people in rural Liberia, you're not going to be talking about nuclear fusion. You're going to be talking about how do we make off-grid solar affordable and usable by um, people living in rural Liberia, right? So it's a different type of solutions. Um, but, the, but if you could invest some money <laughs> and resources into innovative solutions that are um, designed for the poorest and marginalized populations, the people that the SDGs are, are trying to serve. Um, not only, you know, is this necessary to solve and achieve the SDGs, but you probably could bring the unit costs down and that $2.5 trillion could, could come down because we know that innovation and technology brings down, mm -hmm. uh, brings down the cost. So I think there is a failure of imagination in that sense of saying we need to invest in innovation because that is that will drive down that gap probably mm. faster than trying to raise a shit. Oh, sorry. This Pro is a, a do the the dozens of people who listen yeah. to my philanthropy podcast have heard the word shit before. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, then trying to raise a ton more money. Who knows? There might be some children. No, it's an adult, this is an adult podcast, and if the children, if their children are listening, they're going to learn that word eventually. Right? Yeah, they're probably going to learn. This is as good a place as any for uh, them yeah. to learn it. So I, I mean, I, I would generally like. It's kind of funny. I kind of, I, I kind of agree with what the UN is saying there. Right. The way I would phrase it is, with the current systems we have. 
we're not going to solve these problems. Yes. <laughs> and we do need more money. There's no question we need more money, but I think we can also, I, we could use more innovation. I think money needs to be spent on different things. I don't necessarily yeah. need, think we need more of it. Right? I think I think if I, we could rejigger the current UN budget in a way that does meet, does meet the goals. I also wouldn't phrase a lot of the goals the way that they are. Right? Yeah. I, I, some of them um, sort of uh, assume we will forever be capitalist. Yeah. Uh, and to me, some of those goals absolutely won't be met in a capitalist system. Yeah. Um, well, and... <laughs> I, I mean, that's just a, that's a two hour long debate yes. on whether or not the Realize, SDGs yes. are the, the right system. So I, but I let's just assume a... that at the moment, that's the system that I had you know, a, we're all working I have towards. an evaluator who works at a very, very large philanthropy um, on uh, on par with the, with, actually, I think it probably might be a little bit bigger in funds with CGI. Um, and uh, we correspond often. I'm a little bit of a philanthropy wonk. And uh, he has a very dire, he's very focused on the SDGs. I think they're interesting. It's good for folks to know about them. But I really don't believe it's going to happen exactly like that. Right? Mm -mm. But before then, we had we, well, we had the MDGs. And before that, we had nothing at all. So like, yeah. these are really good first steps. Uh, well, I, before that, we had Torah, at least. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some, somewhat of a, of a guide, some goals for us, right? But um, uh, so he, so that's how he phrases it to me, right? Like, in order to achieve the SDGs, the current systems we have aren't, yeah. aren't going to do it. There will need to be large changes, right? And he's, then he really wants to find interventions that can make some of those large changes. Uh, but, I mean, he, and he, he has this little um, treaties he's working on. It's currently about 20 pages long. I've read several drafts of it. People send me stuff for feedback a lot, yeah, as you might imagine. Well, that's, uh, that's your job in that sense. Well, I like to, especially if they're an evaluator for me, I, I will usually yeah. read it and, give it and give them my thoughts. And this guy's an influential person from FB, so I uh, want to be able to advise him as best I can. Uh, and he's, just, and he's, he's, very, very, he's very dire about it, right? Like, they, unless there is, like, there will need to be a major structural, like, event, right, or a revolution or something, right, in order to meet these goals. Right. And I and what I generally advise, like in order, sometimes you really have to calm him down a little bit about it, because right? it is. And he's right. He's, it's some of this stuff very upsetting, particularly with climate and stuff. You start looking at the numbers, uh, it can be quite depressing. But I do remind him that we've been a very innovative species for a very long time, and have solved, in fact, uh, even larger challenges uh, than some of the ones that we face today. Uh, and for me, it's all about just identifying those solutions. Which I assume it's is somewhat similar to you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so well, uh, uh, my yeah. specific question about Saul, right? Yeah. Someone at MIT decided to do it at some point. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about the? So I know about the program, right? And it's somewhat similar to mine, right? And you're looking for people with global solutions, and MIT provides some resources. And I think where we're different, right? You like in the a la CGI, right? Some connections to these larger corporations and stuff, which would be really helpful. I think that's really neat. But why does MIT, which is already has graduates who are in business and is right, already doing lots of things. And there are some similar programs to yours mm. on campus. Uh, why start something new when they did? Uh, yeah, so... so I mean, I'm thrilled that they did. Yeah, Don't get yeah. me wrong. Uh, but why would... Uh, why would MIT do that? It, it's a question that gets asked often. Um, but it's... And there's a larger question about what is the role of a university in the 21st century that mm. I won't get into, but is pretty interesting. Um, Indeed. But the, um, in fact, um, if you read MIT's mission, which is both in, on its website, but also inscribed 
on the dome of MIT. In Latin or? No, no, in English, in English. It was founded in 1861, so, <laughs> okay. uh, um, so you know, Latin was luckily not I went to the Dickinson, which was founded in the 1770s, <laughs> yeah. and so it's, everything's Latin everywhere. Yeah, yeah, no, they, got, they, they got over that. And, and we and don't even, teach, they don't even a, teach Latin at Dickinson, which is, is the, a, fair, the funniest part a, of that. MIT is a school of practical application anyway, yeah, sure. so it was going to be too, it, uh, too practically managing to, to speak in Latin, but the, um, but really, it is about solving world challenges and bettering humanity, and how they've done they've that. Solved, they've solved a lot of world challenges. Indeed, and how they've done that originally was about educating the next generation of scientists and technologists and about doing cutting-edge fundamental research, right? But the, the mission of MIT hasn't sort of, it, it obviously has evolved as time has gone, but broadly it stayed the same, but then the ways, you know, the world has changed and the ways that it operated in the 19th century or at the end of the 19th century, the way it operated in the first half of the 20th, second half of the 20th, and now in the 21st century has evolved dramatically and needs to continue to evolve. So mm -hmm. uh, Solve was founded, you know, on this idea that um, there's a lot of things that MIT has done in the past few years to open up its campus around open learning and the massive online courses and, and that type of thing. Um, but it was founded on the idea, quite simply, that um, while there are a lot of world challenges um, and bettering humanity that can be done on campus, there are also lots of talent and ingenuity across the world and that there are innovators who are not physically uh, at MIT and maybe have never heard of MIT, but who have great solutions and innovations mm -hmm. and yes, technologies to solve world challenges. And MIT can and should play and hold in, in a role in supporting these, even if um, they're not MIT students or MIT faculty or MIT alumni, right? Um, and so in thinking about this, um, this was really the idea of, there were many people at MIT talking about this, but really Raphael Reif, the president of MIT, sort of um, wanted to start um, this as something that um, really was opening up MIT's resources, convening power, expertise especially, uh, to the world and inviting innovators in an open way um, to, to submit their solutions to world challenges that, that sort of we, we define but also crowdsource to, to a large extent and then helping them connect both with MIT uh, resources but also with uh, sort of the network that MIT has created and that Solve now has created um, and help them advance their work. And there's a wonderful, you know, if you come to MIT, buy MIT itself and the dynamism, the Kendall Square innovation ecosystem is incredible in terms of the startups, the VCs, the mm -hmm. biotech companies, the pharma companies, which all exist in this one square mile mostly around life sciences, but not just. And you can really see how an innovation ecosystem has evolved around the university. But how do you think about innovation ecosystems in a global and virtual way? And so those are big questions. And then Solve is certainly trying to be a place where, you know, part of those questions get answered for sure for MIT. Very interesting. So you, uh, if there's folks out there, uh, and I think there may be, who have solutions, right, and want to be involved in your program, how do they do that? So we just opened our challenges. So we're talking at the really right time. Um, they're open until July 1st. 
um, and they relate to early childhood development, healthy cities, circular supply chains, and community-driven innovation. You can look at our website, solve.mit.edu, for more information. Um, and if you have a solution, it can be non-profit or for-profit, it can be related to an academic institution, including it can be at MIT or not at all. You can be 13, you can be 84. Um, anybody and everybody is encouraged to apply from anywhere in the world, US, global, Myanmar, anywhere. Um, and you can submit your solution online. So it's a sort of mini business plan application um, we're looking for um, solutions that have traction. So you have to have a tested prototype at least, but very much, you know, we look for solutions which have pilot or growth phase. You have to um, have an innovation and you have to have some technology mm -hmm. um, involved in this. The technology itself doesn't have to be new, um, but it might be a new application of technology to uh, marginalized communities, or it might be an innovation in the business model, which makes that technology affordable and usable um, but we're very much open and we pose these challenges as questions and we don't presuppose to know the answers we're hoping there are some things that you know we've heard of and and the things but that there's also just this vast array of ingenuity across the world and that you don't have a you're a, uh, you don't have all the answers that's no oh, and, and, <sighs> uh, and we would like to see we would why like are we to even see doing this, this interview um, and, and then and then it's all open. You can see everybody so else they, who they applied. They currently can apply. Uh, to it's open challenges. until July first. Until July. 1st. Um, we have um, and what do you get if you're selected? Uh, first of all, uh, you get feedback. <laughs> uh it uh thanks to the unfunded list we are uh, this will be the, you've done this a couple times before uh right? this will be our fourth cycle fourth cycle yeah uh, so this uh, the first time that we are partnering together exactly you will get many many applications we we the last cycle we got 1150 applications from 110 countries and at some point 60 of them uh become finalists and then they're invited to solve challenge finals um to come to the during un general assembly week in Unga. new york city Unga, yes 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 where we talk about the sustainable development goals and eat canapes um, i was i the only time i went to Unga was when they announced the oh great goals. great 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 and so we pretty sure i saw you there uh, it's a there's new york right yeah and it's and always it's, pretty crazy and then there's Unga, and, and that's it's a even different crazier. situation but, but um but everybody is there and so it's worth um as a finalist being exposed to that and, and getting to meet all these people so we bring about 400 people together there's obviously the judges who and then it's like a nice shark tank with on social enterprises so the 60 finalists um, we work with you once you're selected. We, through unfunded, you will get feedback. Uh, We're gonna on take your all sixty of those and give our full the full uh, treatment. The full treatment, and then we select uh, about thirty-two of those. So about half get uh, ultimately selected to be solver teams, and then it's a nine-month process from September to May where we actively work with you uh, to understand your needs across funding, expertise media, um, impact assessment, et cetera, et cetera. And then we connect you uh, with our networks, both at MIT and sort of in the wider world within Solve to help you advance your work. Um, and really the idea is that it's a marketplace for social impact innovation so that we're working on both sides. We're your talent agency, if you will, for as an innovator and we're pitching you and helping you develop. 
uh, to funders, to experts, to people who have resources that can help advance your work. And we've, um, we have so far confirmed $725,000 of prize funding for this cycle. Um, we'll announce more as we go. And um, we so any, open any Richie Riches out there that might want to oh, actually yes. get in touch with you? Please, please do. And then get access to some of the you get uh, you do get to source some very good solutions. Yes, we do all the hard work for you, basically. Uh, and then in the last couple of years, we've brokered seven million dollars um, worth of grant funding for the Solver team. So, um, so I think that sort of we have a good track record and only growing and sort of really helping catalyze this. But we also know that money is not at all the only thing that um, early stage social entrepreneurs, oh, be yes. they non-profits or for-profits. In my um, experience, it's, it's, I mean, usually everybody, more money, but obviously you can solve problems with money, yeah. right? But in my experience, the it is probably not the like most important thing that they need right now. Uh, the, indeed, at least so the, the, the proposals we, I am reading, which are all very early stage. Yeah, so we put mentors um, yes. to help you and we give you feedback. We give you exposure through other conferences and media. And so that's why we do this needs assessment at the beginning. It's really understanding what is you know, holding you back to some extent or what you need to validate your business model and your impact and then be able to, to really develop and scale and reach these institutional um, Terrific. I am uh, predictably late to being a table captain. Ah, but I want to thank you very much table for coming on to the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. This has been a very good conversation. Uh, I always enjoy speaking with you. I hope that uh, the committee and I are helpful yes. uh, to the solvers. Uh, I so think I look this forward, is going to be Look fantastic. forward to reading all of their stuff. Yeah, this is going to be fantastic. Thank you so much, everybody. And yeah, thank you. get in touch. Bye.